Good morning. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor preaching here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, and I've been on sabbatical uh, all summer. And so if we have not met, uh, please introduce yourself. Uh, and if you were not at our members meeting a few weeks ago, let me summarize what I said there. Uh, I have missed you, love you, and it's good to be home. Every year we do a, uh, a Life Together series uh, talking about some aspect of what we hope our life together is marked by. And this year we're talking justice and mercy. Why justice and mercy? Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see word and deed going hand in hand like smoke and fire. It's why Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, said to be the people of Jesus is more than simply winning people to Christ. It's also... Also, working for the healing of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take four topics. Poverty, adoption, racial reconciliation, and human trafficking. And we are not going to say all that there is to say about each one of these topics. But what we're going to do is we're going to ask three questions. Where did it come from? What did God do about it? What's our role? And in doing so, our hope is that we would give a bit of a biblical theology of each with a practical, tangible next step for us as a church. So let's talk poverty. Globally, 10.7% of the world's population lives on less than $1.90 a day. In America, 12.7% live below the poverty line of $24,339 for a family of four. In Houston, in our city, where we live, 22.5% of the population live below that poverty line. That's almost one in four. As we're driving through the streets of our city, almost one in four of the people that we see live below the poverty line. This is a problem. That's why Bertrand Russell, who was a, a pretty famous atheist philosopher, he, he looked at the world and, and said, you know, if, uh, if God had millions of years to prep to create the world and this was the best he could do, uh, I just don't know that I can believe in that God. Bertrand raises a common objection. that I look at the news, I see starving babies, I see famine, I see wars, earthquakes, and I just, I just don't know that I can believe. And so I think it's appropriate that we start with the question, where did poverty come from? And to answer that, we're going to start in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2 with creation. But here's what I need um, you to do. Before I read anything out of Genesis 2, I need you to be willing to imagine what it was like to be there in the moment, in the act of creation. And I know what you're thinking. Brandon, I work in oil and gas. Put it in a spreadsheet and I'm with you. All right? Can't do that. I'm going to ask you to do this. This might be awkward. That's fine. Close your eyes. As I read it, close your eyes and just try to picture what creation was like. Genesis 2. When no bush in the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And in And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, then the Lord God 
formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, what did you see? What did you see? We did this exercise as a staff on Thursday, and uh, some of what was said was, I, I could just see bright colors just popping everywhere. I saw serenity. There was there was no pollution. It was peaceful and it was beautiful. Me being less imaginative, I, my answer was, I see grass and trees. I don't know what you're asking me to look at right now. But here's the key. The scene is this, that, the, that it was both pleasant to the eye and good for food. It was beautiful and it was sustaining. And the key is that it was in the garden, in a garden, or God created a garden, and so God creates man and then creates a garden to put the man in to live. And at the risk of offending everyone, I wanted to find what a garden is for you. A garden is ground used for growing flowers, fruit, or vegetables. Here's the picture. In the garden, we, we, we see this beautiful picture of all of humanity being provided for. And it's not just sustaining, it's beautiful to look at. There's pleasure and there's food. All of humanity has their needs met, but then we hit Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat in disobedience. And before you get out of Genesis, we have famine and we have poverty. We have rich and poor, have, 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 have and have, have nots. We have those who have a big garden beautiful overflowing when you have those who don't have a garden to eat from. So what did God do about it? Well, what he did was he created a people, called them Israel, and he gave them a place to live. But he didn't just say, hey, I want you to live here. There's a certain ethic. There's a, there's a way that I want you to live in the land that I give you to live in. And in Leviticus 19, it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when you harvest, I want you to harvest. like, Harvest like, but, but when you do, don't just stuff it all in for yourself. I want you to leave the edges. Don't, don't take it all for yourself. Leave the edges out there so that the poor and the sojourner, the outsider, the marginalized, they can come and they have some food to eat. But not just the food, your grapes, that vineyard of yours, that, that which I give you just for pleasure. That, that right there, don't, don't pick all of that up. What's on the ground, leave it for them. Let, let them eat with pleasure too. Here's the, here's the point. God is saying, hey, listen, Israel, you, you want to know my strategy for taking care of the poor? It's you. But when you do, when you provide for the poor, do so in a way that reminds them of the garden. 
do so in a way that draws them back to how I created the world. Pleasure, substance. Don't, don't, don't just meet their baseline needs. Draw them back into the garden. Do it in a way that reminds them how I created the world to be. And D.A. Carson, brilliant theologian, looking at this passage, says this, The relief of poverty in Israel was built into economic and legal structures, not left as a matter of private charity. Those who possessed land, i.e. the affluent, may not have been responsible for the plight of the poor, but they were responsible to God to alleviate it. Its point is that whatever the economic system there must be adequate provision for the poor. Ownership, i.e. affluence, confers responsibilities, not just privileges. And this is the practical meaning of holiness. DA is saying this. Affluence, it's not just a privilege. It comes with responsibilities. And now, if you're in here uh, and you're saying, but, but Brandon, here's the deal, man. I'm not, I'm not affluent. Like, I'm just, I'm just not. I'm not one of the affluent ones. Uh, for some, that might be true. But I bet if we took a look at our hobbies, it might tell a different story. And so I'm going to pick on you in a minute, but I'm going to start with me, okay? If I look at my hobby, listen, I do not want to think of myself as affluent. I don't. In fact, if I gave you access to my bank account, and I'm not going to, but if I did, uh, no one's going to look at my bank account, my checking savings account, and go, man, that dude rich, like, pastor be rolling. No one's going to say that. No one who drives a minivan. No one's going to say that. But if we look at my hobbies, you know what my hobbies are? Here they are, cycling. That's a new one, started on sabbatical. Good chance I crash and I don't show up on a Sunday because of it. And, and not cycling like I can't afford a car, so I ride a bike to and from work. I bought an expensive bike just to go fast. Golf golf. Three times a year, that's a hobby of mine, golf. <laughs> skiing. Skiing, not so much, but more saving money so that I can go skiing, which saving money is a affluent hobby in and of itself. My hobbies tell a different story, and I do not want to look in the mirror and think of myself as affluent, but when I look at the life that I live, it is an inescapable reality. And so, for you, do you spend hundreds of dollars a month going out to eat? Like, do you spend hundreds of dollars a month going and eating somewhere where somebody else cooks the food for you, and if you don't like the way it's cooked, you can send it back? If the steak is, you know, too well done, not well done enough, you just ship it back, they send you another piece of cow. Do you have a line item in your budget labeled vacation? Do you think in terms of disposable income, which you know is a very affluent term? I think if we look at our hobbies, if we look at the way we live our life, it tells a different story, and the majority of us in this room are incredibly affluent. And affluence comes not just with privileges, but with responsibilities. And now I need you to hear me say this. Affluence is not something to be repented of. 
It's a privilege to be stewarded. To be stewarded. And what God is saying to Leviticus, he's saying to us, my strategy to take care of the poor is you. But then we hit Isaiah 1. And Isaiah, talking to Israel, says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And so he starts out calling Israel Sodom and Gomorrah, but we'll come back to that in a minute. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Listen, Israel, I don't want your vain offerings. When you come to worship in my courts, I don't want your vanity anymore. I, I see you going through the motions of obedience. I don't want your vanity. I don't want your vain offerings. Incense as an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath, and the calling of con- convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, there is a lot going on here, but let me summarize it like this. The Lord is saying, I hate your worship. Israel, your worship, it's just, my soul hates Your worship, it's a vain offering, Israel. Why? Why would the Lord say this to his people? The answer is in calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis, it says that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was so great that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire out of heaven. So what could they have done that was so serious to deserve this? Part of the answer is in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. Called them Sodom and Gomorrah because they weren't caring for the poor and needy, which is why in verse 16 in Isaiah, he says this, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He's saying, hey, Israel, repent. Repent from what you're doing. Return back to Leviticus 19. Live Leviticus 19. Live out the law. Be the people. Be my people who are extending justice and mercy in the world. But then, and they don't do it, but then in verse 18, he says something that is completely out of place. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is an absolute statement, declarative statement by God to the people of Israel who have blood on their hands. Who have blood on their hands. 
And he's saying, you with blood on your hands, you will become white and pure. You, snow and wool, that's who you're going to be. And this statement in the context of Isaiah 1 is completely out of place. That's why one commentator said, people who have taken advantage of the vulnerable whose sin is blood red can't be, can't be white and pure. Can't be. Unless, unless 700 years later, a Savior would come who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That in the coming of Christ, this is what happened. He who possessed eternal riches, eternal riches became poor for your sake. Experienced oppression at the hands of the unjust. At the hands of the greedy And he did it to redeem the greedy. And who are the greedy? It's Israel. It's me. It's you. That we might be a people who live out Leviticus 19. But here's the question. How? How? Or what's our role Jesus answered that for us with a story. It goes, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, long, downhill, dangerous road, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, religious man, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, another religious person, When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you need, I'll repay you when I get back. Which of these, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go. You go and do likewise. What's our role What's our how? We go. We go. And we do likewise. We be tangible expressions of the mercy of God to those who need it. Physically and spiritually. And I can't say it better than Tim Keller, so I'm not going to try. Commenting on this passage, this is what he said. The person who knows that he has received mercy while an undeserving enemy of God will have a heart of love for even the most ungrateful and difficult persons when a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, the refugees, 
he knows that he is looking in a mirror. He thinks spiritually, I was just like these people. They are outcasts. I was an outcast. You see, the heart of somebody who has been gripped by the grace of God in Christ says this, I had nothing and in Christ he gave me everything. And so I can freely distribute it. I can be a free dispenser of the mercy of God because I had nothing and now I have everything. Until that's us, it's always going to be, I got what I deserve, they're getting what they deserve. And we're going to hoard more and more of what we have and we're not going to be this agent of mercy that God desires and designed us to be. And so what can we do? There's a lot that we can do. Like on the ground, living this out, day in and day out, there's a lot that we can do. But I want to tell you one thing that we're going to do corporately. One thing that we're going to do together is partner with organizations that are equipped in our city to address specific issues. And so I want to introduce you to one of our new partnerships. This is Open Door Mission. So when we say that we're partnering with them, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean uh, that they simply are becoming a line item in our budget. What it means is that we want to share our life and our resources with them. I'll tell you why. I want to tell you one story of a man who was served by an organization just like Open Door Mission. Robert David Levine was born on August 31st, 1952. He grew up with parents who thought he could do no wrong. His life was marked by a struggle with addiction. While an adult, he was professionally successful by any measure, but the addiction overtook him, and he ended up on the streets of San Antonio, where he was served by an organization just like Open Door Mission. Robert David Levine passed away in 2015, and the last years of his life were made better by an organization like the one we are partnering with. And Robert David Levine was my uncle. He was my uncle Bobby, who, when my parents divorced, threw a ball with me. Talked to Astros. And I don't want to just throw money at people like my uncle. I want us to be willing to share our lives with them. Because when I read the pages of the New Testament, It sure seems like Jesus would have. We're meant to be the living embodiment of the world Bertrand Russell wants. And so let's be that world. A people of mercy. A people of justice. Longing to see the holistic redemption that God has brought in Christ and will bring in his return, tasted and experienced by the poor and the marginalized. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that, um, as Carson wrote, this is the measure of holiness. I pray that we'd be marked by this, that we'd never be a people, never, who long to come in here on a Sunday and raise our hands in song, but aren't willing to extend our hands in mercy to our neighbors. 
May we be the living embodiment of the world that we all want, the world we're searching for. May we really believe that apart from Christ we had nothing, with Christ we have everything. And because we have everything we could ever want or need or long for in Christ, we can be free dispensers of mercy, tangible expressions of mercy by giving away our lives and giving away our goods. Make us that kind of people. We can't force it, we can't create it. We're dependent on your grace to do it. In Christ's name, amen.